Well, good morning. We got started back to Glenview Elementary this last week on Thursday, going over there and helping them with the fresh food pantry. And so we have a pickup. JL and I usually show up around 11 and pick it up at the food bank, and then we get it over there. And we've got volunteers that help us unload it and sort it all out, and then we help get the food in, into the uh, the parents, the families' uh, little uh, boxes, and then they we put them in their cars and send them on their way. And what is so cool about it is this is our I think we're starting our second year, second full year. It's kind of two and a half, but seeing the same faces and the same names and them recognizing us and, and, and hearing about what's been going on with them and, and their kids and their lives and, and building these relationships. And that was our, our greatest intent in doing this is making these connections. And so uh, we're off to another good year. And so October kind of here in, in the U.S. and in more of, I guess, a smaller uh, circle is um, recognized as Socktober. And so this started a few years ago about collecting socks for specifically for the homeless. And so what we want to do, we, we did this last year in, sock, in October. So this year in October, we're going to collect socks for Glenview Elementary. And so for the, the parents and the kids at Glenview. So you'll hear information coming out uh, this week in our email and our Facebook and all uh, about Socktober and uh, that collection we're going to be doing. We also want to help support the teachers in a greater extent this year. And so you're going to get some information beginning this week about opportunities to, uh, to bake cookies or contribute some snacks for the teachers and their, their break time, their break areas, uh, as we continue to build these relationships and make the connection between Summers Avenue Church of Christ and these, these families and, and folks here at Glenview. So just let you know that's coming out uh, beginning this week. And so we'll be talking more about it and have more opportunities to, uh, to contribute and, and to, to get to know these folks. The last Thursday of each month is when we do pantry. So we welcome anybody. We had a new face this week or this past week with us. And so we were glad for that. So you are welcome at any time from where we're there from noon till three. And you can come for an hour. You can come for the whole time. You can just show up. I can't lift anything. That's OK. Can you visit? Can you talk? Can you make a relationship connection? That's all we need. And so if you're interested in that, please let me know. We would love to have you over there with us. So people have always come to God on the basis of faith. Scripture tells us that the only way to come to God is through faith. And so the primary reason for the writing of this letter of Hebrews, which we've kind of been diving into this chapter 11 here, the primary reason is to convince anyone who doubts this, that you come to God through faith. Faith is the path. And so it appears written primarily to Jews who were struggling with this new faith in Jesus, because this faith in Christ is such a departure from the rituals and the works of the temple that they had been practicing for generations, hundreds, hundreds of years. And so it's easy, in a sense, to go through the rituals of temple worship. You could wrangle a goat, bring the goat, kill the goat, drain the goat, burn the goat, and so, or bring a crop, or bring some gold, or grain, or, or prepare a feast, honor a feast day, get ready for the next feast day. And so this was a very visual, surface-oriented, ritualistic worship of God. And so people could see you worshiping, or they could tell you weren't worshiping, because either you showed up or you didn't. Either you participated or you skipped out. And so when we read Hebrews, we find that you don't come through God 
through these sacrifices and these rituals and these feast days and these offerings, but rather you come to God through faith. And that's harder to see, right? Because what does James say? Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works, right? So in fact, faith has always been the center of relationship with God. Faith is the substance that levels the ground under our spiritual feet. It provides this firm foundation for anyone who would come to God, anyone of any status, with any level of personal provision to be able to stand before our holy God. And so these folks who received this letter originally are facing persecution. And they're going to be facing some more, some pretty intense stuff, because they follow Jesus. It's about to get really bad for them. And so they need to be reassured that it's not the quantity of their faith that parted the Red Sea for their ancestors to cross, the Israelites to cross. It was not the quantity of their faith that brought the walls of Jericho down. It was not the quantity of her faith that saved Rahab and her family. It was not the amount of their faith, but rather the object of their faith is what saved them. And so after they took possession of the land of Canaan, the promised land, Joshua dismissed the people, go to your inheritance, go stake your claim. And so within about 40 years or so, Joshua dies, 110 years old. And so in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, we read that that entire generation that followed Joshua into the promised land, the entire generation passed away. A new generation grew up that had not personally experienced the Lord's presence or seen what he had done for Israel. And so it's, it's not that they didn't know, like they'd never heard or never been told or experienced the, the work of the Lord. What this means here is that the, the word of the Lord, the way of the Lord had not taken root in their lives. It did not seal the root in their lives. And so the Israelites, it says in verse 11, did evil before the Lord by worshiping the Baals, the false gods of this land of Canaan. So God's blessing under Joshua's leadership brought destruction to a whole lot of, of Canaanite cities, a whole lot of Canaanite people, a whole lot of barriers that they broke through. And so Israel, through this renewed covenant with the Lord before Joshua died, they renewed this covenant. After Joshua died, they abandoned that same covenant. They turned to the, the foreign Canaanite idols, the, the, the gods of the land, and God removed His protection from them to discipline them. And so whenever Israel cried out to God for rescue, God would raise up someone and He would use them to defeat whatever enemy was oppressing them and deliver the Israelites once again. And so this begins the cycle of what we know as the period of the Judges. And so when a, when a judge would die, God would raise somebody up. When they would die, then the people would fall right back into their idolatry and their sinful rejection of God. And know this, although Scripture seems to suggest that every single Israelite turned away from God, rejected God every time, the fact is we're pretty hard on Israel. We're pretty hard on them as a whole because we don't really understand idolatry in the sense that they experience it. They worship the Baal and the Asherah, these gods of the land. And they did that kind of as a bonus. We're going to receive a little bit of extra protection. It was kind of like, you know, supersizing their faith, if you will. And it was common in that culture. The Lord was just one God. He was the God that delivered them from Egypt. But we got some others out here, right? We'll use Him. But what can the others do for us? And so that's where, they, that's where they stood. That's where they played. That's where they vacillated back and forth. They believed that worshiping other gods would bring different blessings. 
And so when Israel worshipped other gods, it didn't mean they stopped believing in the Lord. It didn't mean that they stopped offering sacrifices to Him because throughout the Old Testament, God calls them out rejecting their sacrifices because those aren't the only sacrifices that they're offering. They're offering to other gods, false gods too. So they didn't just completely reject God, they just brought some others in to their hearts. And so regardless of the culture, the Lord demands an exclusive relationship. He deserves it, but He also demands it. And we rarely recognize the same idolatry in our own culture. And so just as the culture looked to the Lord and to Baal and to Asherah of the land for these blessings, we fall into the same thinking. Let's combine a little bit of Christ worship and a successful career. Let's combine a little bit of, of Jesus worship and, and it kind of fills our stomachs. And, and then also we're going to build some nice houses to live in and we're going to keep trying to move up in the, in the houses and that's going to offer us happiness too. So we got Jesus and this. Do you wonder why we're never filled? Do you wonder why people struggle for this emptiness that's within them? Why do we wake up every morning expecting something better? There's a reason why we're not content. It's not because our job isn't good enough. It's not because our family or the church isn't sufficient enough. It's not because our home location isn't good enough. It's not ideal. It's not because we need a new toy. It's because we expect physical conditions to bring contentment and fuller life. That's the embodiment of idolatry. That we look for our fulfillment. We got God but we need this to really complete us. That's, the, that's, that's idolatry. And so it's the search to fill our soul's hunger outside of the Lord. No different than Israel bowing before Baal, expecting extra blessings, a little more blessing, doing that. So God's answer to the affliction of our souls is the same answer that He gave Israel through the prophet. He says, I've already given you everything you need, but you have not obeyed my voice. What did Peter say? Second Peter chapter one and verse three He says, I can pray this because his divine power has what bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything we need is in and through Jesus Christ. And though these things he has bestowed on us, his precious and most magnificent promises, so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly affection, to brotherly affection unselfish love. See, Israel could not be the light to the nations for the Lord, the blessing and bless the nations beyond them with idolatry in their lives. And neither can we. Why are we not effective in the world around us? Could it be because we get caught up in the same idolatry, the same bowing to the things of this world that those around us were trying to reach do? God demands exclusivity. And Israel didn't deserve deliverance, but God had a plan. And they weren't going to stop it. That plan was not going to be disrupted by the sins of the people. And so for seven years, God allows Israel to be just oppressed, beaten down by a people called the Midianites. And so just to make Israelites miserable. And as soon as Israel would bring in a crop of food, the Midianites would show up. It's like they had this 
this, uh, you know, the sixth sense, they knew when the dinner bell was going to ring because they were there waiting. And they swooped up everything that the Israelites had grown and gathered up and they took it all away. Not only that, but they just tore up the land in doing so with their camels and underhoof there. And of course, what did the people do? They cried out to God again. And of course, God's justice is always tempered by His mercy. And so in Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, we read, The Lord's angelic messenger came and sat down under the oak tree in Ophrah, owned by Joash the Abazarite. He arrived while Joash's son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press so he could hide it from the Midianites. The Lord's messenger appeared and said to him, The Lord is with you, courageous warrior. Now this is funny to me. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor here. The Gideon is processing his wheat crop inside of a wine press. He's hiding in a wine press so that the Midianites don't find him and take his crop. Mighty man of valor, courageous warrior. That's funny to me. You know, guys do this to little fellows, though. You know, we do this. We say, hey, what's up, big man? What's going on, boss? We say that to these guys. They are not a big man. And they are by no means a boss. But we say that projecting what they can grow up to be. What we see them to be eventually. Grow up into a big, strong, valiant man. And so we use these terms. Someday they will be. And so Gideon has lost hope. He's lost hope that the Lord's ever going to do anything for them again. He's ever going to rescue them again. And so in verse 13, Gideon said to him, uh, pardon me, come again, you know, you speaking to my good ear. He says, but if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Brethren, we, that's the question of the day. That's the eternal question, at least the temporal question in this world. If the Lord is for us, why has this happened to us? Why, where are all his miraculous deeds our ancestors told us about? They said, did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. So Gideon is far from being a mighty man of valor. But God's about to show him just how quickly God can close that gap. And so Gideon pretty much kind of waves his hand, you know, at the angel's comments. And God says, all right, angel, step aside. I I got this. And so God steps in. In verse 14, it says, Then the Lord himself (laughs) turned to him and said, You have the strength. Deliver Israel from the power of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? He says, you have the strength because I send you. You have it because of me. Now do it. And so my perception has been probably too long that God has kind of picked the the strongest and like the most righteous men and women. To, to, to save Israel. You know, if we just kind of read through the surface of the stories, we think, oh, well, they were the best, so He picked them. You know, if they, if they were strong enough, if they were righteous enough, then God would use them. And that's how they got chosen. And I think we, we think this way because we read the stories about what God did through these people and we forget about who they were before God stepped in. Noah deserved the flood just like everybody else. And you think about Abraham. Abraham grew up in an idolatrous family. He grew up in idolatry. And he showed little faith when he first walked with God. And then Jacob, who was Jacob? Jacob was a lying cheat who stripped everything from his brother, Esau. Gideon is no different. Gideon is weak. He's cowardly. 
and he's faithless. He says, no, the Lord is not, the Lord's not with us. You, you're, you're mistaken. Have you not looked around? He's forsaken us. He's turned his back on us. People keep telling me how, oh, he delivered us from Egypt. God did great things for us. I haven't seen any of it. Look at this misery that we're living in. Gideon says to him in verse 15, but Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Just look. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my family. And the Lord said to him, ah, ah, but I will be with you. You will strike down the whole Midianite army. See, Gideon's family owns idols. Gideon is an idolater. What can God do with an idolater? Gideon has no righteousness. He's got no innate strength. He's got no standing in his tribe. His tribe is the least of the Israelite tribes. His family is the least in the tribe. And he's the least in his family. What's God thinking? (laughs) Yet God picked him. He chose him. See, we do the gospel such a great disservice when we don't emphasize the the weakness and the the, the people that God uses and calls to his service throughout the Bible. And if we don't recognize how weak and sinful people like Abraham and people like Rahab, people like Gideon were before God called them, then we're not going to recognize our own weakness. See, the world sees this as self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Because you church people, you think you've got it all together, right? See, the decision to sacrifice one's life to God, that's already a difficult decision. That's not an easy, rash decision. But we make it impossibly difficult when we act as if people got to meet a certain standard, a certain condition to be called to God's service. And this flies in the face of everything that God shows us He is about in Scripture. God accomplishes His purposes through the weak and the faithless, just like Gideon and just like us. And so God is glorified because he will turn the useless into something that accomplishes his purpose in great, magnificent ways. And it reflects his glory. And so missing this fact shows we don't really understand the gospel, nor do we fit into it. And so it shows we don't recognize how much God loves the weak, how much God loves the uneducated sinner. And so ultimately, we deny God's power to use any situation for His glory and for His purposes. And I love how Paul puts it. What do we read just a moment ago? Think about the circumstances of your call. Think about who you were before you obeyed Christ in baptism. Who were you? What mind did you have? Where did your feet take you? What did your hands serve? Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But in spite of that, God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you want to brag, you want to be puffed up about something. Be puffed up about God in his might and power and strength through Jesus Christ. So you don't have to live up to any standard to be called to follow God. God wants all of his children. 
to come to Him for His glory. He works a massive project on our dead lives. It's not us. We're not the ones that do it. And this should cause us to, to trash these, these thoughts, not only of our pride, of, of our own abilities, but all the excuses that we can't be God's instruments. Because, see, I'm too old. I can't, I'm done. My Christian life is behind me. I don't know enough. I didn't study much. I, I kind of sleep through Bible class. I'm too tired. I'm just tired. I'm too young. Somebody has to drive me everywhere. Somebody has to help me. I'm too young to do this. I'm too messed up. If people, if people at that church really knew... See, we can fill God's ears with excuses of our weaknesses and our ineptitude all day long. Just like Gideon did. But God's simple response to us is the same as it was with Gideon. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. Emmanuel, God with us, through the Son and through the Spirit of God. It doesn't answer the how. and That's hard for us. God, I know you're going to be with me, but how? Can can you fill me in? Sometimes he doesn't. It's that retrospect that's so hard for us. But that's the walk of faith. That's the walk of faith. And that's all we need to know. God says, I will be with you. And that's all we need to know. That's all Gideon needed to know. But in his humanness, it's all not all Gideon wanted to know. And so in Judges 6, 17, Gideon said to him, So if you're really pleased with me, then give me a sign as proof that it's really you speaking with me. How about that? How about that? It had been such a situation here with the Israelites that Gideon hadn't even heard the voice of the Lord until now. And so God doesn't reject Gideon's doubt. Gideon comes to him with doubts. God doesn't reject that because Gideon's not rejecting God. He just wants some affirmation. Is this really you, God? I know what you can do, but is this you? And so he goes and, and Gideon prepares this, this kind of soup offering thing and he comes back and he places it on a rock and then the angel incinerates it with fire. Brings fire down and Gideon says, yeah, okay, we're cool. Let's do this. All right. Got my attention now. And God says, okay, we'll do this, but we're going to start with you. We're going to start with you. So your family has a bunch of idols. Your family's idol worshippers. You've got to get rid of the idols in your own life before I can use you to help others. And so Gideon took ten of his servants and he did just as the Lord had told him. He was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in broad daylight. So he waited until nighttime. And he went and he tore down his father's idols. And think about this. Somewhere, somewhere among the Israelites... (laughs) is this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that box are two stone tablets on which God had written what? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a god of anything, an idol of anything, out of a graven image or anything that's alive. You shall not make an idol to it. So Jesus, who came not to erase the law, but to fulfill God's law. He tells us today, Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, if anyone wants to become my follower first, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, living by faith is not faith in God and... It's not faith in God plus. It's faith in God alone. Faith in God only. And so remember, Gideon was not a well-respected leader 
perfectly positioned within his community for this revolutionary change that God had called him to. Gideon is nobody. Gideon is nobody. Gideon then goes to his father's house in the middle of the night and effectively uses his father's putter to destroy the television during football season. That's kind of what he does here for his dad. That's the impact here. So seeing Gideon's faith in action, what happened now? What did you, how did your father react? Well, guess what it did? It emboldens his father. Of course it did. He tore up all my stuff. But it didn't embolden his father to retaliate against Gideon, but rather it emboldened his father to stand up for Gideon when the men of the city wanted to kill him. And so, see, we don't know. We do not know how our Christian principles are going to persuade someone else to follow Jesus. We don't know that. And so because of that, too often we sit in silence or we sit still or we avoid it altogether because we don't know what the outcome's going to be. Gideon didn't know, but he knew what God told him to do. Think about this. What if they are simply waiting for someone else to take that first step? Apparently, that's all Gideon's dad needed. Someone else to step out and say, we're not doing this anymore. We're following God. And Gideon's dad said, yes, we are. Let's do this. And so Gideon's act emboldened not only his father, but Gideon sent out messengers throughout the tribes to gather warriors against Midian. And 32,000 men came. And even though Gideon destroyed his father's idol, the battle that Gideon's about to face is going to be an even greater test of his faith. And see, sometimes our greatest test of faith may be the one that we have not studied for. And so in Judges 6.36, we read, Gideon says to God, If you really intend to use me to deliver Israel, as you promised, then give me a sign as proof. Look here, I'm going I'm to put my jacket down. I'm putting a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and the ground around it is dry, then I will be sure that you will use me to deliver Israel as you promised. So what does God do? Exactly what Gideon asked him to do. The Lord did what he asked. So Gideon gets up the next morning, squeezes out the fleece, and enough dew dripped from that to fill a bowl. And Gideon does what? Excellent, God. I know we're, I know this is you. I know we're ready. Let's do this. He said, okay, please don't get angry at me. God, please don't get angry at me when I ask for just one more sign. Please allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make only the fleece dry while the ground around it is covered with dew. What does God do? Get mad at him? Jump all over him? How dare you question me? I told you to do something, you go do it? What does God do? Verse 40, that night God did as he asked. Only the fleece was dry and the ground around it was covered up with dew. So Gideon wakes up the next morning and he's like, okay, let's do this. I'm in. God says, great. You got too many men. I just, you know what I just... I sent people out. They came. God says, you got too many men. I'm not going to do it with this. Gideon's like, look, Lord, have you counted the Midianites? Like 135,000 of these guys. Soldiers? (laughs) We're not soldiers. Look, I got 32,000. I thought I was doing good. Went out and got all these folks. I may not be an expert at math, but I know what 135,000 is, and we ain't got it. So the Lord said to Gideon, you got too many men for me to hand Midian over to you. Israel might brag, our own strength has delivered us. Absolutely. Sometimes God will bring us to the lowest point so that we can realize the only way we can rise 
is through his strength. And so God tells, he says, tell the ones who are afraid, y'all go on home. It's okay. And 22,000 disappeared in a cloud of dust. <laughs> Once the word got out, they were gone. I was just waiting for somebody to tell me I could go. 22,000 leave. So Gideon looks around. And more than half of his men are gone now. And God says, you still got too many. <laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine what Gideon's thinking. God says, look here, I'm going to tell you who you're going to keep, all right? Bring them down to the water. Everybody's going to get a drink. Look at the, the ones that scoop it up. You know, do that little scoop thing and drink. We're going to send them home. The ones who get down and lap it up like a dog, we're going to have them stay. Now, you think about this. If you're looking for the more refined in society, what, what, is, what do manners look like? Probably, if you didn't have a cup, you would scoop that water and, you know, delicately drink. But you got guys down sticking their face in the water, lapping it up. God says, I don't want these refined ones. I want, the, I want these guys. I want these messy ones. That's who I'm going to do this with. So can you imagine Gideon looking and seeing the ones who were drinking? I mean, if it was me, I'd be going around tripping folks. Get down on your face. You know, I, need, I need you. Get down there. You know, get that out of your hand. But he doesn't. So anyway, 300 men lap the water. And with 300, God says, I'm ready. Let's do this. And so Israel had been unable to overcome this Midianite oppression for seven years. What makes the difference now? What's different now? Gideon's army was massively outnumbered. But God saw the numbers from a different perspective. When God looks at the glass, He sees it differently. And people try to find virtue in these particular 300 men. There must have been something about them that set them apart. But the text doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us there's anything special about these men. Just a sign that helped divide them out. And so earlier, God told Gideon that he wanted as few as possible, he wanted to win with as few as possible, so that Israel would recognize that he is still and always their deliverer. So how many men did God need to conquer Midian? How many men did he need? He called Gideon. How, how many men did God really need? We love to crunch numbers. Fantasy football season. And so I know when, when the guys got together and did their initial draft, you know, sit down and select their team, they want to know what are the chances that this player is going to break out and do great things. Or what's the chances this one's going to, you know, is he injury prone? What's the chances he's going to fall short? Think about when the president considers an attack, a military attack. He wants to know how does our military size up against who we're going to attack. And so we think about the effect we can have on the gospel in the world. It's terribly easy to think that we need a horde of people. We don't have enough people. But God needs Summers Avenue to understand that He does not need strong numbers to accomplish His purposes. Imagine the gospel's limitless potential here if we will fearlessly open our mouths and speak even in our small numbers to those we have contact with. We don't need a mega church. To accomplish great change, the Lord only needs a tiny group of people. He only needs one, right? If the Lord wills, we could teach 10,000 people this year. Think about what he accomplished with 12 apostles. We've got to stop doubting. We've got to start praying that it will happen. The Lord does not need massive numbers to massively fulfill his purpose. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, you get up. Attack the camp, for I am handing it over to you. But if you are afraid, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and listen to what they're saying. 
Then you will be brave and attack the camp. So Gideon went down with Purah, his servant, to where the sentries were guarding the camp. Oh, the love and the patience of our God. Do this, Gideon. But if you're afraid, which means I know you're afraid. God knows he's afraid. God says, I got something else to ease your mind. I'm here with you. I'm going to take care of you. So as Gideon goes down and he starts, he eavesdrops in on the camp. He hears the Midianites, this vision, this dream. And they're worried now that God is going to work this might through Gideon. So they're all afraid. And finally, Gideon's resolve was full. He hears this and he says, now I'm ready. I got a plan. And here it is. All right, fellas, we're going to need some trumpets. We're going to need some clay jars. And we're going to need some torches. <laughs> There's not a sword in there, right? There's not a, a cannon, not a military weapon there that he's mentioned. Trumpets, clay jars, and torches. So Gideon takes a hundred men to the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they had changed the guards, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars they were carrying. All three units divided out. All three units blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right. And then they yelled, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they stood in order all around the camp. The whole army ran away. They shouted as they scrambled away. And when the 300 men blew their trumpets, the Lord caused the Midianites to attack one another with their swords throughout the camp. Gideon knew the stories of the Lord. He knew the might of the Lord that delivered them from the, the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. He knew the hand of the Lord, the might of the Lord that carried them through 40 years of the wilderness and fed them with, with the quail and the manna. He knew this. Their clothes, not even a thread was worn on their clothes during that time. He knew about this. But those stories had become legends of a bygone era in his life and in the history of the people. Has the kingdom of God, has the growth of the kingdom, has the future of the kingdom become legends from a bygone era in your heart? Is that the way you feel about it? Do we look around and do we see nothing but the strength of the Midianites before us? Is that how we see the world around us? Are we making sure to the best of our ability that the generation in front of us, the one before us, is making sure that God takes root in their lives. Faith in God takes root in their lives. The Israelites were emboldened by this faith of Gideon, who, by the way, started out where? Hiding in fear, right? Hiding in darkness, hiding in fear. And little by little, step by step, trial by trial, God reveals His strength to Gideon, who in turn was flesh and blood, and he was now on flesh and blood display of this confidence in the power of God, faith in God before the people. That's living by faith. God takes us where we are. And if we will follow Him, He will lead us where He wants us and needs us to be to glorify Him in our lives in the smallest or the greatest of ways. And we may look at ourselves who are small in size, lacking in stature, lacking in status, plagued by doubt, plagued by fear, and we may believe we're at a great disadvantage to be used for the, for, by God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may see ourselves like that. But God uses Gideon's testimony to tell us that we are in prime position to be used by God. It's the gospel of Christ. And it's His infinite mercy 
that will do the work. Are you hiding in a wine press this morning? Are you hiding there afraid of... Maybe you're afraid someone will see you. The real you. The you you've been fighting with for years. Maybe you're hiding in that wine press afraid that someone will ask you (laughs) to do something. That God may seek you out to be used by Him in some way. that's That's what sin does to us. It keeps us hidden. It keeps us shut away. It keeps us sheltered within ourselves. And sometimes it's, it's, you know, we come to assembly, but we keep ourselves from one another. And it very well may be that your test of faith is the testimony that someone else needs to hear in order for them to be strengthened in Jesus Christ. Are you keeping that from them? God has given us His greatest testimony. And that's the extent of His love for us. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to put on this human flesh, this this weakened, rotting flesh, to become not the King of the world on earth, but to become a servant, to serve us, so that He'd become the King of heaven for eternity. He did that by means of a cross hanging there for us. And He calls us to that cross to lay down whatever it is that's got us hiding in our wine press. And this morning, as we gather together in the midst of the Midianites, we will pray for one another, encourage one another at this time. If you are ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you need prayers of this congregation in your walk with Christ, We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. Will you come?